Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And for this episode, we're joined by Mike Dilger. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Vic, Neil, good, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm not quite sure what time it is in the world of podcasts. It's very nice to meet you, Victoria, and it's nice to see your little cheery face again, Neil. <laughs> cheery face. That's it's good to finally meet you too, Mike. <laughs> Grumpy, moany face normally. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> oh, cool. right. Oh, Vic, Vic's having a bit yeah. of a choking around session as well. <clears throat> we'll just have to edit that Is it my turn to cough? Drink, Victoria. We may lose her on the podcast. Oh, things are very irritating right now. So. She's back. That booster ratings. Yeah. <laughs> well, kill your co-host <laughs> after yeah. the episode. <laughs> All right. Who done it? A podcast who done it? Uh, I think there's enough true crime podcasts. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to leave all this in now. I know because this is quite funny. Mike, can you tell people who you are, for those that don't know, please? I am a naturalist and a broadcaster. I live in the Chew Valley, south of Bristol. I've been obsessed with wildlife for 40 years. I've been on the one show for 15 years. I've done 450 films pontificating about everything from bumblebees to basking sharks. Um, But prior to that, I used to work as a biologist in Britain and in the tropics. Currently, I do a lot of plate spinning. I do... TV presenting for the one show still. I do tour leading. I do quite a lot of talks and I write all my own words, some in the right order. <laughs> we always start with our latest sightings and as the guest, you get to go first. So have you had any good recent sightings? I have, Neil. Yes, I just came back from Speyside where I was tour leading for a week. Um, it's a place, I. it's kind of my second home. I'm there six, seven weeks a year minimum based out of the Grand Tom's Hotel in Granton on Spey, clearing up on all the space specialities. And sometimes we see most of them, sometimes we don't. Crested tits, pine martins, golden eagles, white-tailed eagles, uh, red squirrels. But this week's highlight in Speyside were the snow buntings. We went up Cairn Gorm into the car park, the upper car park, and there was loads of snow because it was flipping freezing up there at the moment and a good dump of snow and all the snow buntings were down right by the car park edge where the birders feed them and they were flying around, they were trilling, they were really approachable, 15, 20 of them from just a few metres away. I've seen snow bunting loads of times but I have to say that's probably the best viewing of seeing them in winter. So snow buntings was top of the list. Oh, don't blame you, brilliant birds. Um, I remember, something like 2016, I went up and there was actually snow around the car park and there were snow buntings. And we got a few pictures of them. And then I sat around for about two hours and they <laughs> never came back down again for me. They bugged off. Yeah, t- typical. Oh, they, they're they know when they're you got full a of personality. Yeah. They're full of personality as birds. I mean, they don't have the uh, that kind of beautiful white and black plumage they have in the summer. They're kind of off-white and a bit cinnamony and a bit grey and a bit browny, but oh, they're, just, they're just hard as nails. They're an, they're an amazing bird. So, yeah, I mean, going to see them in summer and right on the tops of the crags would be fantastic, but that was my sighting of the week. It's a good one. Vic, have you had any good recent sightings? Um, I've got three, um, and you'll never guess what the first one is. Uh, frogs. Okay, that was going to be my second one. <laughs> toads? No, I haven't seen any toads yet this year. I've not been out to my normal site, though, because my normal site is the top of the Mendips, 
And it's got to be Red Kite then, surely. It is Red Kite. So <laughs> every time, like Red Kites basically are now my my regular sighting because I see them every time I go swimming between Freeman uh, Radstock. Only this is a slightly different one because on this occasion, I think it was like last week or the week before when I was driving along, I kid you not, I must have seen 20 plus red kites in the mm. field, right kind of right next to the road, but flying over the road in like the su- low sun. And it was just absolutely amazing. I've never seen that concentration of kites here. You know, there's no feeding station or anything. They're just, they're here and they're, and they're happy and they're wild. And that was just absolutely phenomenal. My second sighting is my frogs are back after a break for the snow and ice and yes we did have several inches of snow here because we live quite high up um, on the Mendips. So we had frog spawn what, a couple of weeks ago now I think we had the first frog spawn and then temperatures plummeted so it's currently sitting in a bucket in my kitchen until things defrost so it can go back outside and then the other night last night just saying to my husband's like I swear I've just heard a frog and um, we're in the upstairs room so we're on three stories it's like i swear i've just heard a frog so off i went it's raining outside and there he is our gorgeous male frog is just sitting in the pond calling his little heart out and there's a new blob of frog spawn and for regular listeners of the podcast you'll you'll understand how big a step forward this was for me i actually took a proper photo of the frog so i got my main camera out my 5d3 with my 1a with my 100 mil macro and i used it for the first time since the surgery which was a massive step forward for me and it's a really beautiful photo which neil will attest to because i actually sent it to him it was nice and it's the first photo i've taken in nine months and then today after worrying that i wasn't going to have any bee orchids there were no bee orchid rosettes in my lawn i found a little bee orchid rosette in my front lawn so it's back again this year so i'm happy a virus a pephora so, that's quite the garden plant it came up the first one came up in 2020 during lockdown and i got to do something that i've ne- i would never ever have had the opportunity to do before because i'm a zoologist by training and i got to document the flowering journey of the same plant all the way through and it had 10 flowers in the end and i've got photos of each one like one one through to 10 because it, it took quite a long time to go through all 10 but it was just one of those. Normally, I'd be all over the place. I'd be here, there, and everywhere. I'd never get the chance to visit the same plant and see that flowering journey. Uh, my latest sighting would be oh, I'm going to go for. Actually, I'm going to go with two since you had three. I was driving to work last week, and a, I saw something bounding along the edge of the road. I thought that's not a rat, and it was a stoat running along the side of the road, which was really nice. But it was eclipsed two days later again driving to work, came over a railway, across a level crossing, and as I came down this sort of slope on the other side, a bird came out of the trees and started flying at high speed just above the road, about a foot, maybe two foot above the road, and it was navy blue in colour, so it was a male sparrowhawk. And... Oh, I thought you said Merlin. Oh, no, oh, not quite, not quite. Oh, that would have been really good, wouldn't it? But um, no, it's definitely a male <laughs> sparrowhawk. And um, nice. I put the foot down a little bit and just sort of followed it up the road. And I forgot to look at the speedo, but I was doing about 30. So shows how fast they go. Um, but it's just amazing doing the whole, you know, where they sort of that twitchy, instantly change direction as they're almost effortless. Oh, amazing bird sparrowhawks. And a couple of weeks ago, I went down, first of all, 
to around Arundel, but not actually into the nature reserve. And we saw a white-tailed sea eagle flying over, which was pretty cool. Long of an From the new forest birds. Uh, yeah, one of the yeah one of the Isle of Wight ones. And then the next day we went on the Paul Harbour bird boat trip and um, saw loads of red-breasted mergansers. Apparently there were some more white-tailed sea eagles, which would be three trips with my friend Richard in a row that we've had them. <laughs> but we didn't quite see them, unfortunately. But we did see a goshawk getting chased by two ravens and loads of other cool seabirds. Uh, there was a flock of three black-headed grebes with one Slavonian grebe out there. And nice. it was absolutely freezing cold. I think it took me about four days to warm up after. Um, and we had to do a quick visit to Arn, because I love Arn, um, and saw the seeker deer and watched a tree creeper for a good 10, 20 minutes and loads of gold crests and... You know, lots of bits and pieces that you normally see in that sort of reserve. Um, a little bit early for raft spiders, unfortunately. I'll take your cold and I'll beat you with minus 12 the day before yesterday up in Speyside. Do you know what, Mike? as you like. On that boat, I wouldn't be surprised if it was minus 10 with wind chill because I was the only person other than the guides that stayed up on the top of the boat the whole trip. And there was people wearing <laughs> Arctic gear coats that went under <laughs> because it was too cold so oh yeah probably wasn't quite as cold as you but i bet it was giving it a run for his money <laughs> oh the wind chill just cuts you in half doesn't it without a doubt minus 12 if it's not windy is eminently manageable yeah. but zero with cut wind chill is brutal oh, anyway there we go suffering for our art yeah, <laughs> indeed <laughs> i did get my best of a picture of a curlew as well which is my favorite wader so it was worth the suffering <laughs> to get it Mary Colwell would be delighted to hear that. I would be, would be. I was sent a book called 1,000 Shades of Green, written by some chap called Mike Dilger. Mike, would you like to give us a brief summary of what the book's about? Brief summary is my big botanical year near in Victoria, um, as I tried to see as many plants as possible. I tried to see a 1,000 different species of plant in Britain, uh, in 2021. Uh, the idea came out of COVID. Um, as we were all confined to barracks, uh, my presenting disappeared, my tour leading disappeared, my writing carried on because uh, you can't get uh, COVID off a keyboard. And um, I did a few online talks. So for the first time in years, I was at home, um, not traveling around Britain. And actually I'd describe it as, you know, it was the worst of times, but it was also the best of times because I spent some quality time with family. The weather was amazing, if you remember, early in 2020. And I spent a lot of time outside with the dog and uh, my boy Zachary walking around the Chew Valley. Not far from where you are, Victoria, I think. The other side of the Mendips. Yeah, yeah, it's not far at all. So it was, um, it was, it was beautiful. And uh, I kind of know the birds inside out, back to front, upside down. And I'm like Rain Man for birds. So, I mean, I know all the birds I see on all the walks on a regular basis. And you'll see a limited cast of mammals, I suppose. I know most of the invertebrates I'm going to see. And then I just started to look at the plants at my feet. And I just was, I was off. And I, I suppose I'm a half, I was a half-decent botanist when I started. So I'll know daffodils, dandelions and daisies. But then I did something monumental. I took a plant book with me and I started to drill down and identify which species of violet, which species of forget-me-not. And I was off, and I was just learning all the time. It was brilliant. Zachary loved it. He would find the plants, I would identify them. 
He's got great visual acuity and is closer to the ground. The dog would find them by weeing on them. Um, and we just, we were off. It was amazing. And then towards the end of 2020, I was having a shower and that's where I have my best ideas. And I'm always trying to think up ideas of earning money or writing about things. And I thought, why can't I try and see a thousand different wild plants in a year? And there's something like about two and a half, three thousand species because there are lots of weird and wonderful plants that have escaped out of gardens. And I just arbitrarily picked a thousand. And so I started, after a lot of research work, I started on January the 1st, 2021. And it was a whole mad, whirling dervish of a year, which I absolutely bloody loved. I learnt more than I've learnt in years and it took me to the most amazing places, the most amazing habitats. I hung out with wonderful people, and I just had a blast. It was astonishing. I, I just, I'm, I'm in love with plants. I adore chlorophyll. Green is the new black, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Birds are dead to me. Feather, fur, you can take it and you can stuff it, because it's plants I'm into now. <laughs> Bit like you are about dragonflies, Neil. Yeah. I'm into plants big time. I mean, grasses, sedges, rushes, ferns, Trees, I don't care. I want to identify them all. I love plants. So so when's part two, like the next 1500 coming out? I don't think I do that, Victoria. My wife might divorce me. <laughs> when I saw the thousandth plant, I was with my family and my wife was just, I think the, the one word is relieved. Because of course, <laughs> to see that many plants, you've got to spend a lot of time out in the field. I mean, the joy of it, the, doing the book was that I saw a lot of the plants locally. The Mendips, where you know yep. Victoria, and places like Avon Gorge in the Chew Valley. I probably saw half of all the plants there by drilling down and getting to know those difficult species, but actually fairly cosmopolitan. But also as well, I travelled to some of the best locations in Britain, like the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, down to Kent. I didn't do any in Essex, sorry, Neil. But I went up to um, Breckland in East Anglia and a lot up in Scotland because I work up in Scotland in Speyside and northwest Scotland. So I, so I got obsessed about certain plants. There are certain species, really rare ones or really beautiful ones or very charismatic ones that I wanted to see. But all of them were the same. I mean, dandelion is the same as lady slipper orchid. They're just one extra on the list. And I just became obsessed. So botanising by day. By night, I was sitting at the table trying to get to grip with sedges and grasses because I, I just had to learn the most enormous amount in a year. And I had a lot of help as well, meeting people along the way who were very knowledgeable, who knew certain habitats very well or locations. I just loved it. I, I, I don't think I could do another thousand though, <laughs> in answer to your question, but it was bloody brilliant fun and quite dangerous. Botany is can be quite hardcore. People think it's skipping gaily through the meadows, but it's anything but. I mean, it's quite dangerous botany. Yeah, I've read the first few chapters of the book. It's very good, by the way, everybody. So I can personally you, vouch Neil. for the first few vouchers. It might, like, first few vouchers? I can personally vouch for the first few <laughs> chapters, but I mean, it might tail off at the end. I can't personally vouch for that. But, <laughs> but How could it tail off on 999? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think you're up to about 50 or so where I'm up to um, but in it already you've been in danger of falling off a cliff and uh, nearly got into a fight with a big burly man on a building site so I look forward to yeah. see what other scrapes you get into later in the book <laughs> well part of the joy was going to the most wonderful nature reserves and most remote locations but also as well I, I love urban botany weeds are just the most wonderful thing 
Um, so I did a lot of urban botany in Bristol. And the great thing about, about urban weeds is that a lot of them are non-native. So I counted non-native plants as well as native. And there were two different types of native. They're the archaeophytes, the ancient introductions, like poppy seeds that have been here for thousands of years as a seed pollutant where we brought grain over from the continent. And then there are neophytes, which jumped over the garden wall much more recently. But the weeds are amazing. In, like for example, Bristol. I mean, it was an ancient slave trading port to its eternal shame. So you go to the centre of Bristol, you can find African weeds, uh, Mediterranean weeds, North American weeds. So the, the plants that are growing up through the cracks in the pavement and out of the walls are a kind of multicultural reflection of the, of the diaspora in Britain as well. So, I mean, you can see weeds from all over the world in urban areas because, of course, they're warmer as well, so they're, they're less, um, less likely to freeze over. Not only did I go to the finest places like the top of Cairngorm Mountain or Breckland or Teesdale, but I did loads of botany in, in urban areas. And that story of religion to about me almost getting beaten up was trying to find brownfield sites in the centre of Bristol where I could look for weird and wonderful urban plants like Coltsfoot. Uh, which is flowering right now. That Tussilago farfara, that lovely yellow flower with uh, scales for leaves at the side. It's got big hexagonal leaves that are white felted underneath later in the year. I found out that I, I looked at all these potential sites I could visit on Google Earth. And then when I went down to see them on the ground, I found I couldn't get into any of them. They were all fenced off. All camera surveillance, keep out, danger. And I couldn't access any of them. And I eventually got into one where the gate had been left open. And I found the Cotswold straight away. And this bloke came over in this filthy high-vis jacket and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm looking at the plants. <laughs> and um, he said, you can't be here. And I'm like, why not? He goes, dangerous. I looked round, it was a massive site, the site of a football pitch, and there was one digger that was not being used. And there's two other guys in high-vis jackets right down the other end. And I needed time to photograph the plants. So I said, I'm only going to be here 20 minutes and then I'll leave. You can't be here. You've got to leave now. That's where my jaw jutted out. I said, I'm not leaving until I photograph the plants. He goes, I'm going to ring my boss. You'll be in trouble. And this big burly bloke came down just after I photographed the plants. And you know what it's like, Victoria, you're trying to photograph macro. You need quite steady hands. Yeah, yeah you do. I'm a, I'm, a lover, <laughs> I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I was trying to photograph these plants with this guy striding towards me. It was like a freaking wardrobe. <laughs> And they both threw me out the site, and I looked back, and the idiot was standing all over the Coltsfoot, accidentally, I think, as he threw me out the site. And what a philistine. Anyway, and I almost fell off a cliff face in, in Radnorshire as well, looking for a really rare plant. So, yeah, botany can be injurious for your health. <laughs> but a lot of fun. A lot of fun, yeah, brilliant. Botany is an amazing experience. It's so thrilling f looking for plants and finding them. You go to, you can be a real nature detective, so you go to a site where you know there's a rare plant. And I, I got a lot of help, for example, in, in Somerset, you might, know, might or might not know, Victoria, there's a group called the Somerset Rare Plants Group. I do, yeah. And they are, they're, they're amazing, these botanists. They are world-class. So I went out with them and also as well, I would email them and ring them on a basis, a regular basis when I was trying to find plants. But then you, you basically use your skills as a naturalist and eventually work your way towards finding them. And when you eventually find this really rare flower, it's so, so exciting. I mean, on more than one occasion, a, a tear came to my eye when I found a really mega rare plant. 
And I find actually that I'm not, perhaps not that talented a botanist, but I'm like a dog with a bone. I just did not give up. So there were hardly any plants that I tried to see and didn't see because I failed. I would just stay there till it was dark, sleep in the car park and then find it, to have another cat find it the following morning. Yeah, it's, it's really, really addictive. I haven't tried crack cocaine, but it must be... <laughs> hardcore botanical twitching must be like crack cocaine. It's amazing. Uh, one thing I've found, because I've discovered botany somewhat in the last few years, um, having ignored the poor plants, I, I'm the sort of person that would identify a plant by the beetle that it was on it, you know, <laughs> rather than the actual plant. But I found, I think it was Enchanter's Nightshade, I went round with someone who knew their stuff and saw it in this wood and went, wow, that's really cool. Well, I wish we had that in Essex. And then it was everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. When it was ancient modern in Essex, I see it now. It's like, oh right. So it's just once you, it's getting your eye. And did, did you find that that once you'd sort of seen some of these small plants that you'd never noticed before, they were everywhere. You're yeah. absolutely spot on. Yeah, Circaea lutatiana, Enchanter's Nightshade. When you when you learn it and you get your eye in, your search image in, you realise it's bloody everywhere in woodlands. Um, yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, once once you see it for the first time and you log those kind of key features, then then you're off. And the, I mean, the great thing about botany really is that you need a plant book and an eye lens. And I was constantly kind of, get, and I also have got a knee pad as well. Here's my knee pad, you can't see it, but it's like, because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm getting old now. So I, my, my knee started to get knackered. I got a housemaid's knee from kneeling down the entire time. So I took my knee, a kneeling pad, an eye lens, and a botanical book. And that's all you need, really, in a sense of adventure. And then you get down and look at even the most dull plant that's tiny through an eye lens. Uh, you'll know this about looking for invertebrates, Neil, or doing uh, macro photography, Victoria. When you get in close and personal, they're amazing. I mean, some of the hawk bits, for example, there's one hawk species of hawk bit that's got little hairs on that are like little tuning forks. So it's like a little Y. All the hairs are like little Ys. And when you see it for the first time, it's just like, bloody hell, that's brilliant. So all those, I love all those little features that help you separate the quite difficult species. And once you get down, I was really scared of sedges and rushes. But when you get into sedges and rushes, they're not that difficult because they're very habitat specific. If there's two species that are really similar, one might be acid, bog, and one might be base rich flushes. And they look the same, but they're completely different habitats. And then you look at the utricles of the sedges and you realise they're just beautiful when you magnify them. I mean, we ignore these things that are peril. And you're right as well, Neil, what you say about ignoring them. I mean, this thing called plant blindness, even naturalists like ourselves, a lot of us don't look at plants. They look upon them as the bed and breakfast of, of, of the natural world or for fauna. But they're so important. And I've become a better naturalist by learning my plants. And you guys should as well. It is. I mean, like, I'm I'm a big advocate for plants. I, I love my plants anyway. Yeah, always, always have. Yeah, if I'm out, whether it's here or I spend quite a bit of time in Switzerland at the moment, and you go out and you just... I, will, I could just, like, walk down the road, and if I see something, I will just stop and I will look at it and enjoy it and don't really care what's flying above me. I'm not a bird person. Neil will... will back me up on this i am not a bird person not when a bird person see... at all but you've had red kites as your sightings every every episode <laughs> yeah but that's because year. i'm driving to swimming and i see them every time when i'm driving to swimming i'm not going looking for them <laughs> but i'm i'm one of those people that will always whenever i'm out i'm always looking down i'm never looking up 
I'm always looking down at what's kind of around me and they're just as well as the beauty and the fascination and, and like you said Mike when you get really close and you look look with look at them really close up they have all these fascinating like features to them one thing that really amazes me is when you I'm, I'm really kind of big into looking into like the history and the folklore of plants as well and when you start yeah. going down that road wow it's just incredible You've hit something really interesting there about plants. Though. When you see one species of plant, it might be a calcicole, like it might be a species that likes to live in a calcareous environment with thin soils. By that, seeing that one plant, you can learn so much. You can learn about the soil, you can learn about the geology, you can learn about how the site has been managed for hundreds of years, you can see how the site might have changed over the decades or over the centuries. And just by looking at plants, it's like this kind of portal into this amazing amount of knowledge because plants can't move like birds and insects they're stuck there and so they have to like it or lump it and so in some respects they're much better kind of canaries in a coal mine as to the health of the environment than any other wildlife the wildlife that's too mobile can move if it's favorable or if it's if it's not suited to it whereas plants are kind of stuck there and so in that respect it, it, it's just mind-blowing yeah when you're doing your adventuring, did you ever find the classic thing, which I'll give you an example. I was at my work, the nature reserve. I was told to keep this tiny one metre square area an extra stream clear for the town hall clock. The, the, oh, Moscatel. That's Moscatel. Sorry, yeah, Moscatel. I've never pronounced it, but it's just to start with town hall yeah. clock. A doxa Moscatelina is its Latin name or scientific name. Which it, It's got five sides on it, isn't yeah. it, for the flower. It's a brilliant plant. And I kept keeping a close eye out for it and I you know, kept the nettles down. I could never see it. And then I cut up the hill one day. This is quite a steep valley side. For Essex, a very steep valley side. And there's this patch of green. And I'm not kidding, it was about 20 metres by 10 metres. And it was just entirely... Where it grows, it grows abundantly. Yeah, did you find that with a lot of plants? Like you'd, you'd find one and think, oh, wow, I'm glad I found it. And then walk about five metres along the path. And then there was like a field full of them. Sometimes like that. I mean, a ducks and moscatellina or a town or clocks is a fine example. So I spent ages looking for it at a site near to home. Then all of a sudden I came it, I came across it and it has these big clonal patches that spread over big areas. It's like twin flower. If you find twin flower, Linnea borealis up in the Cairngorms, you can't find it. And when you see a patch, it's like 20 metres by 20 metres covering the floor. There were one or two cases where I just saw one plant, one specimen, that's all I needed. Uh, for example, Teasdale Violet up in uh, Teasdale. I mean, that was an amazing visit because I've never been to Teasdale, to the, the land of the spring gentian, where you get all this amazing sugar limestone. And we get loads of rare plants there. And I only saw one Teasdale plant flowering, and that was with the help of the warden. And it's just one of the rarest plants in Britain. Fringe gentian, I saw fringe gentian. There were only two flowers there, and they are the only two flowers known to be in Britain. And they haven't flowered for about eight years. So I looked there, the two flowers, I thought, they're the, well, because Britain's pretty well known biologically, they are the only two flowers of fringe gentian in Britain, and it flowers once every five or six years. So that's kind of a pretty big buzz, seeing those. I mean, like all naturalists, we love seeing rare things. I, I love seeing rare things. I love seeing new plants. So out of the 1,000-plus plants I saw, probably at least 350 of those were new, so I got 350 new buzzes. I got a buzz almost every single day of the year. I love seeing new things. 
So that was really exciting as well. Yeah, that's always a, a nice buzz, especially if it's something you've seen in a book previously and something you've, there's a few things I've you know, wanted to see since childhood. And then when you finally see them, it's, whoa. They almost have a halo around them. I mean, they're just, mm. some plants possess this aura, which is so exciting. I, mean, I saw Alpine Bartsy up in Teesdale and I didn't quite know what it was. And the warden was with me because by that stage, I'd, I, if I couldn't know, didn't know exactly what the plant was, I'd be able to kind of have a good guess. And I saw this purple, hairy plant in this alpine meadow. And it was just like, oh, God, that's astonishing. What is it? He's like, alpine bars here. Yeah? The only place it grows is Teesdale in these alpine meadows and a few ledges up in the Scottish mountains. And it was just, it was just slam dunk straight into the top five plants I saw in the entire year. It was amazing. Yeah, I love seeing new things. I was just constantly twitching. <laughs> I remember walking around Chaffer Gorge, which is local to me, and it's got lots of orchids there. And I found this really nice white coloured orchid. And I went through the book three times, completely confused at what this orchid was. Well, it's got a spike and it's got lots of flowers like an orchid. What is it? And it was a round leaf wintergreen. Oh, right. It's not, <laughs> even, not, not even remotely related to orchids. Pyrola rotundifolia. Yeah, they're beautiful, actually. Round leaf wintergreen. Oh, they're lovely. And loads up in Scotland. Serrated wintergreen, one flowered wintergreen, another top plant I saw, which was just stunning. So, yeah, it was just, it was a thrilling experience just doing all the research work and then going out and seeing them. I mean, there were several moments during the year where I just felt totally indulgent and, and just felt blessed to have been able to do this project. Because obviously, as, as 2021 went on, COVID slightly disappeared and retreated, and that enabled me to travel a little bit further afield. And I wanted to try and do it in as carbon neutral manner as possible. So, I saw a lot of plants locally. And when I did go further afield, I tried to fit my other paid work around it so that I wasn't doing journeys just to see a few flipping plants. Yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. And I can't do another thousand, though. I'm very, I, don't, I don't think anyone's tried to do it before either because I think a lot of people have a big birding year and I think there is a record for the number of species of birds seen in a year. And I bumped into a couple of uh, what they call the BSBIs, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, and that's the kind of benchmark of, of plants identification and each vice county each watsonian vice county has a recorder and i was talking to the warwickshire county recorder and he said i once tried to see a thousand plants in a calendar year and it almost killed me and i got to about 900 and he's an amazing botanist yeah i think i'd achieved something quite special I'll let, the, I'll let the reader be the judge of that, though. <laughs> well, as someone that failed to see all... <laughs> between 40 and 50, depending how you're counting it, dragonfly species, <laughs> there's a few less to see. That's difficult, though, Neil, because it. dragonflies are kind yeah. of fine weather, though, so you can go all the way up to Scotland to go and look for azure hawker and white-faced darter and northern emerald, and all of a sudden, you know, you get three days of crap weather, and then you bomb out. So, um... Or you, you go a week too late, it's the driest it's ever been up there, and you do your backing on the way up as well, which is what I did. That was that was good timing. I did get the Azure Hawker and Northern Emerald, though, and the Northern Damselfly, but I failed to get the White-Faced Data, which is the one I could have got in England. But yeah, anyway. Charlie Moss. <laughs> Obviously, I, I've, started, I've actually started listening to it, because I'm, I'm actually listening to the book on Audible while I work. Um, but... Um, in it, you talk a lot about your family because I think it was more of a fa it was a very much a family thing, wasn't it, Mike? It wasn't just you. It 
it was very much you, you know your your wife and son and dog mustn't forget the dog um, <laughs> were also um, included in it. So do you want to tell us like a little bit more about that? Absolutely, Vic. We formed the Chewstoke Botanical Group. My wife and myself, Zachary, and our dog. I mean, and it was the power of the collective actually because Christina works as a gardener. So she knows a lot of the plants that have jumped over the garden wall and are now alongside road verges and brownfield sites better than I do. Zachary's got amazing visual acuity because he's young and he's close to the ground. And a real innate interest of plants as well. A bramble would just kind of basically find the best plant in the whole reserve to wee on. It's astonishing how he did that. <laughs> um, but it's a really important, important thing there that it wasn't done in isolation. It wasn't just me as a single person wandering around being thoroughly indulgent because I am a family man and I've got family commitments. And so a lot of it was a bit of a balancing act because obviously April, May, June, July are the key periods where everything's flowering and I want to see the plants at their best. So a large number of the plants were seen alongside my family. Sometimes they were slightly dragged around. But I think it's really important to try and get kids outside. I mean, Zachary absolutely loved the whole mission, really, particularly because it was kind of hanging out with his dad and hanging out with his family. I mean, he's a kid we've never struggled to get outdoors anyway. I mean, we you know, he, we don't need encouraging. We don't have to tell him to turn the television off or tell him to stop playing video games. He's always keen to go outside. And I think more parents and grandparents need to work a little bit harder at getting their kids outside. And because when I was a kid, the outside, outside was wonderful. Come the weekend, after a week's school, if it was raining all weekend, I'd just be so just down and dispirited because I want to be outside. Inside was boring, outside's amazing. But it's somehow been flipped on its head with kids these days that outside is the dirty, dangerous place and inside is nice and warm and safe and lots of things to do. So wildlife has to compete in a a very crowded marketplace for kids' interest these days. So a big part of the book was trying to say, look, it's amazing taking kids outside. Zachary would, would run around, he'd get loads of physical exercise, he'd learn lots, he'd have a great fun doing it and he'd, you know... It was free as well. I mean, looking for, looking at plants is virtually free. I remember one day we went to go and see Pasquflower in Cotswolds. And we went there, about £10 in petrol there and back. We took some sandwiches with us. It's an amazing sight in the Cotswolds. This fantastically rare plant looks absolutely stunning. We found it quite easily. And we just ran around, the clouds scudding overhead. It was a beautiful day. We had the whole reserve to ourselves. No other one, nobody was there. And it was just the most amazing day. Zachary was worn out, had a great day. I'd hardly spent any money because we all live in financially straitened times. And the whole family had had a brilliant time. So, I mean, wildlife watching is just the most amazing pastime, hobby, pursuit, obsession, whatever. And that's what we're all, that's why you do this podcast, to try and get more people over to the joy of watching wildlife. And that's what I want with a book, really. Trying to encourage families to go outside and enjoy natural history. You don't have to know the names of all the plants. You don't have to know the names of the birds or the dragonflies. But just go out and enjoy it. And get the, get the sunshine on your face. Get worn out. I mean, we'd take Zachary out to a nature reserve. He'd run around, get really tired, get to bed straight away, sleep really well. It meant we could get to the wine in the fridge earlier. Without him kind of <laughs> struggling to go to sleep. So we could basically just drink in the evening. 
That's a good, there's a good enough reason <laughs> to give your kids an experience on a nature reserve. Because then you can kind of, they're really tired, they go straight to sleep and you can get quietly pissed downstairs. So that's as good a reason as any. But I, I, I am really, I, the, the book's two things, really. It's trying to encourage families to go outside and look at wildlife. Not just plants necessarily, but also as well, just shine a spotlight on plants because they're, they're amazing and they're overlooked and they need more champions. They need more people who love them because without people shouting about them, they'll just simply disappear. They won't put up a fight. They'll just, they'll just go. I'll just go like that. So we just need more people interested, shouting about them, telling us how wonderful they are. And that's what the book's really about, really. Trying to say, plants are great. But they are, I mean, like you said, there's from, you know, like you're like you really kind of stunningly beautiful ones down to tiny, tiny little ones. There's so much variety as well. And, you know, maybe, maybe you don't find grasses so interesting, but maybe you love ferns. It's, there's so much variety out there. And in, in every... Habitat. I mean, we, we did a podcast during, I think we did a couple episodes, didn't we, Neil, during like the first lockdown. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, so Chris and I would go on walks around here. Obviously, we couldn't go, you had to go from your, as you know, from your door back to your door. You couldn't drive anywhere. So we would, we explored through and we found all these amazing places. And, and we did like an episode on plants growing out of walls, for example. Because, you know, you live it particularly in the countryside, and, and you probably have this as well, Mike, the number of plant species growing out of little cracks and that in the walls alone. Loads of ferns. It's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, maiden hair, spleenwort, yeah. rusty back. You get all the different species of harebells from the Caucasus, ivy-leaf yeah. toad flax, red valerian, budlia. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, they're absolutely yeah. belting. I love that. I love that kind of vertical botany. It's wonderful. Mm. Unless, unless you live in East Anglia like me where it's too dry <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a rare thing but yeah. you, probably get a few, you probably get a few continental plants there the, the mm. plants of the kind of cold continent in the cold winters and the dry summers see I'm sure you'd find some stuff Neil oh you still get you get other stuff I mean blimey if you want salt marsh plants I live in the county with the most salt marsh I think plenty of sea ester and slender hairs oh, yes. did you get uh, that I one? did see slender hairs here but it's the only blue, yes, pl- it's blue plurium that I saw yeah, it's a nice, a weird-looking plant, yeah. actually. Yes, yeah, it's, it's and I saw the rust on it, which has been found in, like, two sites. Because you get a rare plant and a rust that's only found on that rare plant, a fungus rust, then that's even rarer. It's like, whoa, I'm excited about a brown splodge. <laughs> I didn't see I didn't see the brown smudge on the slender hairs here that I saw. That is... N- I never thought I'd be excited I'm talking about, about plants yeah. being niche. That is freaking niche. Yeah. That is really nice. I was with, I think someone from um, Natural England or EA or somebody showed it to me. So it was where I, in my old work, I'd, I'd walked past it hundreds of times. And obviously, cause it looks like a bit of grass unless you're looking for it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a weird looking thing. So, so Mike, I've got to ask you the dreaded question. What was your favourite plant out of the thousand that you um, saw? Oh, God, that was on my list, Neil. Oh, on both your lists. <laughs> Sorry. Go on, go, go, go on, Vic, you ask, it. you ask it then, Vic. No, go no, on. I've got another one. I've got um, another I've one, got so you go with that one. My favourite plant, I mean, it, it's head and shoulders above the rest. Species number 779, Norwegian mugwort. It's found on three mountaintops in northwest Scotland. It's found in Norway and it's found in the Urals Mountains, the Ural Mountains in Russia. So it's got this disjunct population where it's all found over in three areas. And we made a whole half hour 
on Costing the Earth, BBC Radio 4, about that programme, because they pitched an idea about me looking at plants and could we do it for Costing the Earth, and they said yes. And I pitched it primarily on Arctic alpine plants because with climate change going on at the moment, we're getting wetter, milder winters. These plants that like it hard and cold on our most northerly mountains are the ones that are most threatened with extinction because they're retreating at the mountaintops where it's coldest, and at some point there's going to be nowhere else for them to go because all the other plants are out-competing them. So these Arctic alpine plants can cope with really hard, extreme temperatures, very cold winds, late snow, but they can't cope with competition from other plants. And so I went up with Dr Barbara Jones right up this mountain called Culmore in northwest Scotland. And it was, um, it, it was it's, it's always raining there. And we had two days and I was really worried we'd get up the mountain. We arrived at the mountain on our first potential day and the whole mountain was fogged out. And I just thought, that's it, we're screwed. We're going to miss it this day. We're, gonna, we're not going to get up the mountain. The whole radio programme was gone. And Barbara's a really experienced mountaineer and she said... I think there's going to be a temperature inversion. So we set off through the moorland, a midge-bitten moorland, went up this kind of old poacher's path, and then basically the path runs out, and you have to spot these cairns up the mountainside, still in complete fog, looking up, trying to find a cairn, worried about turning your ankle. And then we just popped straight out of the cloud at about 800 metres. And it was just like coming out of the cloud like that. And all the other mountains like Quinag and Sylvan were all around just poking like black icebergs out of the sea. And you have to go to the summit and then drop down onto this barren tundra just off the northwest shoulder. And there we found the plant and we sunk to our knees. You can listen to the podcast on Radio 4's Costing the Earth. It's on, still on there. Once you've listened to this and gone through all the back catalogue of the UK Wildlife Pod. Um, and we, we found the plant and it was just absolutely amazing. It was like hairy and beautiful. It's got like a little flower, like a little yellow button. So it has the disc petals, but not which are the yellow flowers, yellow petals you can see in a daisy, but not the white ray petals. So it was like a rayless flower. And it was just, a, its head was nodding coquettishly, like, here I am, here I am. And it was the only plant there in this kind of sandy, barren tundra in this Torridonian sandstone that had been there for billions of years. And this plant was only found in 1950 for a nation that's obsessed with finding things. It was just, it was found incredibly late. And it was... I cried a little bit when I found it, mostly out of relief. So species number 779, Norwegian Norwegian mugwort. What a plant. Yeah, it sounds like quite a setting to see it as well. Oh, it's amazing being up there, Neil. Just the two of us, all day, it's just the two of us up there. And it was just, it was, it was just magical. Seeing this mega rare plant, it was like finding a first from, a birding first for Britain, a new species of dragonfly for Britain. It was that good. I mean, hardly anyone sees this plant. I mean, it probably has about three or four visitors a year to go and see it on this Colmore mountain. So, yeah, it was, it was just the best. Heroin oh, in the veins. <laughs> Sorry, a lot of drug analogies. I don't quite know why they are coming out tonight. <laughs> Friday night. Yeah, maybe, yeah, party on. <laughs> well, here's one for you. And I'm going to ask this because this came to me while I was swimming earlier. I was like, do you know what? I've got to ask this because it's a cheeky question. Mm. Plants or birds? At the moment, plants. 
Although professionally, I get I make more money out of birds because people like birds being pointed out to them. So professionally, birds are more important. Kind of like secret nerdy passion. At the moment, I'm more interested in plants. But I mean, t- t- I like. To, oh, it's hard. It's like. It's like trying to say which would you rather lose, your son or your dog? I mean, it's close, to be honest. I'm joking, of course. It'd be the dog every time that they stay. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I, it's really hard to choose. But at the moment, probably personally plants, professionally birds. Well, it was great to talk to Mike. Finally, he was quite half our list of first people to interview, wasn't he? And we just, just got round to it. And there is more of that interview to come at a later date. If you are a member, you'll get that sooner than everyone else as part of our new rewards for members as we wanted to give something back to those of you that are giving us money on buy me a coffee you can find mike on twitter at dilger tv and his website is mike dilger all one word dot co dot uk and do pick up a copy of his book one thousand shades of green a year in search of britain's wild plants available at all good bookstores but you've got some news haven't you vic I have, yeah. So after a few years of not doing very much, first big news is that I am going to be at Bird Fair this year. So if you are coming to Bird Fair, I will be in the Puffin Marquee, which is the art marquee. I'll be there with my forgotten little creatures and my needle felting and my drawing. So please come and say hello, you know, pop by and give me a wave. And also this year, I'm not running any of my own workshops, but I'm really excited to have teamed up with Sigma the RSPB and Green Wings Nature Holidays and I will be running macro photography workshops and also an introduction to wildlife photography with the RSPB this summer. They're all based in Somerset and you can find all the details for them if you go on my website forgottenlittlecreatures.com go to the blog and there you've got the list of uh, 2023 events. They're all listed there with the links with further details and and how to book so kind of really exciting times because it's my first time back doing workshops for two years but really really looking forward to them so yeah if you if you fancy coming and doing some macro photography down on sunset levels with me in may and june book on come say hello yep. and likewise i'm going to be at bird fair too i don't have a store though i'll just be floating around interviewing people hopefully and so i'll probably hung, come and hang around in your stand for a bit when i think at times yeah well, we said we do some podcast stuff as well so yeah we'll, we'll both be there for sure i think that's it from us i might have some workshops myself to announce soon so uh, if anyone's interested in photographing bluebells or dragonflies and stuff in essex give me a shout i'm gonna do one-to-ones but i think i'm gonna try and organize some stuff with some various bodies so um yeah but that's it from us on this episode um see you in the next one yep take care everyone Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips, and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.